Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, Truman and the Origins of the Cold War. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the slide, The Cold War. When did the Cold War actually start? Scholars traditionally date the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union from 1945 to 1991, though others believe it could have started in 1918 with the Allied intervention in Russia, since British, French, Japanese, and U.S. troops officially landed in Siberia to rescue Czech troops, though they were really there to help the Whites fight the Reds in the Russian Civil War, which also helps explain some Russian animosity towards us to this day. We also have to ask ourselves, was this really a Cold War? Well, there was no direct war between the United States and the USSR, though we do know that United States and Soviet planes shot at each other during the Korean War, but at least there was no nuclear war. Of course, we did fight proxy wars in Korea, Vietnam, and elsewhere, and worldwide as a result of coups and other covert operations, an estimated 22 to 50 million people died. The Cold War was an ideological conflict between two economic systems, capitalism and communism, and anti-communist feelings were very strong in the United States during this period, and so another Red Scare ensued. Both powers battled for influence over the so-called Third World, and this depended on whose systems would travel better. And so we will see that the Third World was considered the perfect testing ground for these two competing ideologies. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Truman. Harry Truman was a common, hard-working, patriotic harbordasher from Missouri. He had commanded an artillery battery in France during the First World War, and he was a member of a political machine in Kansas City and was elected as a U.S. Senator in 1934. During World War II, he had served as a chair of the Senate Committee that investigated the U.S. defense industry, and he wanted to make sure that money was not being wasted and that contracts were being distributed fairly. However, when he was tapped as the vice president in 1944, Truman was not part of FDR's inner circle. And Truman once said, quote, FDR never did talk to me confidentially about the war or about foreign affairs or what he had in his mind for peace after the war, end quote. Truman, though, felt a sense of responsibility and had a sign on his desk that said, quote, the buck stops here which by our modern-day standards where no one takes responsibility, is fairly impressive. Please advance to the next slide entitled, THE Superpower. When the Second World War was over, the United States was THE world superpower, and Churchill once said, quote, The United States stands at this moment at the summit of the world. Well, why is that? Well, first, the United States has a monopoly on atomic weapons, at least for now. Second, the United States was technologically advanced thanks to the war, as well as surrendering Nazi scientists. Third, the United States was relatively untouched by the war, unlike other major countries. Lastly, the U.S. economy was strong, though at the war's end, many worried that the country might slip back into the Great Depression. Despite these strengths, there were concerns for the future. The government had controlled prices during the war, and when this stopped, inflation soared. As a result, workers in the auto, 
steel, and coal industries were angry that their wages weren't keeping pace with inflation, so millions went on strike in 1945 and 1946. Another concern was what would happen to the 15 million veterans who would return home. Were there going to be enough jobs for them? This is one of the reasons why Congress passed the GI Bill, which provided billions of dollars in loans for veterans to buy businesses, houses, and small farms, and it also provided money for vets to go to school, either at colleges or vocational institutes. Despite its superpower status, the United States' foreign relations quickly deteriorated, because once the Axis powers were defeated, the Grand Alliance crumbled pretty quickly. Not only had the Soviets controlled and occupied Eastern Europe after the war, but a few months later, the Soviets made territorial demands, including land around the Turkish Straits. And they also delayed moving their troops from northern Iran, where they had been stationed since 1942. Many worried that there could be a potential conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. And so the UN ordered the Soviet Union to remove their troops from Iran, and Stalin finally complied several months later. Many U.S. policymakers were trying to explain the aggressive Soviet behavior and develop a grand strategy for dealing with them. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Soviet Behavior. In February 1946, George Kennan, a junior foreign service officer stationed at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, sent an 8,000-word long telegram to the U.S. State Department. Kennan argued that, quote, at the bottom of the Soviet view of world affairs is a traditional and instinctive Russian sense of insecurity, end quote. And obviously that paranoia is slightly justified, since Russia had been invaded by the Mongols, Napoleon, and Germany twice, just to name a few. Kennan also said that the Soviets were acting aggressively in expanding in order to justify Stalin's dictatorship at home. And moreover, he said they would continue to do so until they experienced a string of failures that might convince a future Soviet leader that aggression was not in the nation's best interests. So he basically took the lesson from Munich, that you should not appease dictators like Stalin, or any Soviet leader for that matter. Historian John Gaddis once said, quote, Kennan's long telegram became the basis for United States strategy toward the Soviet Union throughout the rest of the Cold War. Another individual who insisted that Stalin should not be appeased was Winston Churchill, who went to Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri in March 1946. This is basically Truman's backyard, and Churchill delivered his Iron Curtain speech, which said, quote, From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent, end quote. And Churchill was actually onto something, because by the end of 1948, nearly every single Eastern European government was essentially a satellite of the Soviet Union. These satellites included Poland, Hungary, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Eastern Germany. And the Soviets are doing this because Stalin is obsessed with security after the Nazi invasion. Now, the Americans were not the only ones who were paranoid about foreign activity because in September 1946, the Soviet ambassador to the United States, Nikolai Novikov, sent a telegram to Moscow that said, quote, The foreign policy of the United States reflects the imperialist tendencies of American monopolistic capitalism and is characterized by striving for world supremacy. 
end quote. So as you can see, both Kennan and Novikov had shaped the Cold War as an ideological conflict. And this means many misunderstandings and talking past one another, which will have a tendency to make Americans and Soviets see what they already expected to find. As a result, this will get both countries in a great deal of trouble and cause misery worldwide. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Back Home. The Great Depression and the Second World War had exposed deep divisions within the Democratic Party. Many were angered over FDR's moves on civil rights, and Southern Democrats and the Republican Party further blocked New Deal legislation. Despite this, the Democratic Party had embraced compensatory government, which means that you should make up for the private sector's failings with Keynesian economics, priming the pump, and more government regulations. As I already said, in the aftermath of the Second World War, there was a great deal of post-war inflation and high prices. And this is actually a continuity of history, since recessions and inflations typically follow demobilization. So as a result, inflation rises, which then makes prices go up. So as a result, in April 1946, 400,000 American coal miners went on strike. And so Truman seized the mines after 59 days and brokered an agreement between management and the miners. While some opinion polls showed that most Americans supported Truman's move, we also see a great deal of anti-union sentiment growing in the United States as a result. This is reflected in the 1946 midterm elections when Republicans ran on the slogan, Had Enough? As a result, the GOP controlled both houses of Congress for the first time since 1928. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Back Home. With control over both houses of Congress, the Republicans passed in June 1947 the Taft-Hartley Act, and they even managed to override Truman's veto in the process. The Taft-Hartley Act outlawed closed-shop contracts, which required workers to join unions before they could get hired. It also empowered the president to force strikers back to work if the industry was considered essential to defense. This also required union leaders to swear that they were not members of the Communist Party, and so labor unions called this the Taft-Hartley Slave Labor Act. What we see from this is that anti-communism is becoming part of party politics in a political football, which will make our domestic politics far more toxic and lead to many stupid foreign policy decisions. In terms of society, Americans continue to move about the country, and we see the rise of the West from 1940 to 1960, when 6 million Americans moved to California alone. This is again illustrating that the West is a product of federal spending. Since many people are going to work in defense industries in many other areas, that had been directly bolstered by federal spending. In April 1947, baseball became better when Jackie Robinson became the first black MLB player since the 1880s. In an interesting bit of trivia, Robinson was actually not the best African-American player in the quote-unquote Negro League. However, he was the one who owners believed could take the abuse best. Now, this is not just a story of equality in doing what's right. In fact, this is about money, because the quote-unquote Negro League was actually more popular than the American League, 
and so many baseball owners decided that they should integrate in order to bring back black patrons and as well to kill the quote-unquote Negro League. And this is one of the great ironies of integration, as it will essentially decimate the black middle class. As the movie 42 illustrates, Jackie Robinson was able to deal with this type of abuse. Since he had actually already navigated this when he had an incident on a bus when he was in the United States Army. While some Brooklyn Dodgers fans accepted him from the beginning, he was treated horribly on the road, especially in the South. Despite this treatment, Jackie Robinson is one of the greatest baseball players of all time, and so he is well deserving of the memorialization that he is given in our contemporary society. Going back slightly to the rise of the West, we should also note that as more people moved out West, so too comes the movement of baseball and other sports teams to these areas, so the Brooklyn Dodgers eventually become the Los Angeles Dodgers. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Foreign Aid. In March 1947, Truman went before Congress and asked for $400 million in economic aid for Greece and Turkey, whose governments were threatened by communists. In a speech, Truman outlined his so-called Truman Doctrine, which said, quote, It must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or outside pressures. End quote. So going forward, this basically means that the United States would aid countries facing communist aggression with aid and ammunition, but not necessarily American troops. By June 1947, Secretary of State George C. Marshall gave a commencement speech at Harvard University, where he announced what was known as the Marshall Plan, which pledged to send money to European countries to help them rebuild. The purpose was to help the poor and hungry people of Europe so that they wouldn't vote for communists into office. So from 1948 to 1952, $13 billion of U.S. aid was pumped into Europe. But this aid did come with strings attached as it required 70% of the money to be spent on American-made goods, and recipient nations had to also oust communists from governing coalitions. Despite these rules, most European countries used this money to rebuild the way that they wanted to, to the chagrin of American authorities. Now, the Americans also offered this to the Soviet Union and their European satellites, but they made sure to decline. It's hard to understate the pivotal role that the Marshall Plan made in the rebuilding of Europe, since much of the continent's social programs was only made possible with American taxpayer dollars. However, this was a small price to pay for American hegemony over the region. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Red Scare. Nine days after announcing the Truman Doctrine, Truman signed an executive order which created the Loyalty Review Board which would investigate federal employees for possible affiliation with the communists. As a result of this, 3,000 employees either resigned or were fired, many without being formally indicted by a grand jury. One constitutional authority of the day called Truman's order, quote, perhaps the most arbitrary and far-reaching power ever exercised by a single public official in the history of the United States. By July 1947, George Kennan, writing under the pseudonym X, published The Sources of Soviet Conduct in the magazine Foreign Affairs. 
This further built off of his long telegram and stated that the U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union, quote, must be that of a long-term, patient, but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies by the adroit application of counterforce as a series of constantly shifting geopolitical and political points corresponding to shifts in maneuvers of Soviet policy. In layman's terms, do not let the Soviets get away with any more aggressive expansion. Contain them to where they are. And so the idea of containment will become the backbone of U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War. Also in July 1947, Congress passed the National Security Act, which established, among other things, the Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA. This organization was initially only supposed to be about information gathering. However, it would later engage in numerous covert operations, as well as interfere in foreign elections and overthrow perceived unfriendly foreign governments. There is a little story I like to tell about the culture or perception among CIA directors. When one of the first directors was asked, why don't you put the word the in front of CIA? He responded, you don't put the in front of God, do you? And that tells you everything you need to know about the CIA and how they view themselves. Well, by October, the Red Scare was heating up. When the House of Representatives launched the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, in order to investigate the former State Department official, Alger Hiss. This investigation began when an ex-Soviet spy claimed that Hiss had given him government documents in the late 1930s. Hiss was later convicted of perjury and sentenced to five years in prison. The lead Red Hunter in this process was an obscure California congressman called Richard Nixon, who later wrote that, quote, it was the Hiss case that completely changed the public's perception of domestic communism, end quote. And Nixon would ride this Red Hunter reputation all the way to the presidency. Please advance to the next slide entitled, NDC in Trouble. So what was the New Deal Coalition? That's right. It is a coalition of blue-collar workers, southern segregationists, African-Americans, white urban ethnics, and old-school liberals. Southern Democrats and the coalition had been angered over the perceived civil rights moves and was angry that FDR had reversed his policy on segregation, as you recall his executive order which established the FEPC. Even worse for segregationists was the Supreme Court ruling in Smith v. Allwright that declared that the white primary was no longer constitutional. The white primary said that only whites could vote in Democratic Party primary elections to ensure that white segregationist Democrats would be the nominee. Democrats argued that the party was actually a private organization and thus not subject to the 14th and 15th Amendment, but the Supreme Court said instead that parties were part of the state, and so the amendments applied. Then, in July 1948, Truman signed an executive order which banned racial discrimination in federal hiring as well as desegregating the military. Truman knew that Southern Democrats would be angry about this, but he and his advisors did not think that they would actually leave the party. And at their convention later that fall, Democrats adopted a pro-civil rights platform. As a result, Southern segregationists began to bolt the party and even declared that the Supreme Court was filled with communists, 
which is ludicrous. Please advance to the next slide. Well, as I said, in response to Truman's moves, conservative Southerners left and formed the state's rights Democratic Party, a.k.a. the Dixiecrats. At the same time, there were a number of Democrats who did not like Truman's Cold War foreign policy, and so they ultimately broke and formed a new progressive party. The 1948 election was a four-way contest between Truman, the progressive Henry Wallace, the South Carolinian Strom Thurmond for the Dixiecrats, and Thomas Dewey of the Republicans. Dewey, as the governor of New York, had been very capable, but the Democrats seized upon his bland speeches and famously compared him to a plastic man on top of a wedding cake. Truman, by contrast, ran an aggressive campaign, and he traveled the country by train and delivered over 300 speeches. He denounced the so-called Do-Nothing Congress, which had failed to expand Social Security or increase the minimum wage, despite the Republican plan to do so. Now, the media was very convinced that Dewey would ultimately win, and so they were shocked that Truman narrowly won re-election. Why do you think they were so wrong? Well, it's because they conducted most of their polls by phone in cities, so they completely missed out on the poorer and more rural votes. Regardless, the election of 1948 is arguably a sign of things to come. Because among other things, it shows that Southerners, who had been very loyal Democrats for years, might be willing to leave the party over civil rights. So 1948 will presage 1968. In January 1949, Truman delivered his State of the Union address, and he said, quote, we have rejected the discredited theory that fortunes of the nation should be in the hands of a privileged few. Every segment of our population and every individual has a right to expect from our government a fair deal. In other words, Truman is calling for better housing, a higher minimum wage, full employment, and an expansion of Social Security. So he wants to expand upon the New Deal. I'm going to go ahead and end the lecture here, and we will pick up next time with the second half of the origins of the Cold War. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.